James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It's remarkable how often the Bible talks about money. 11 of Jesus' 39 parables involve money. So that means that 28% of everything Jesus ever said that was recorded uh, had to do with that topic. And if you're not a Christian, it's always difficult for a pastor to preach on money because you come in and you, you, you just think, well, that's what the church is after. They're after my money. I appreciate what Shelton said at the beginning of the service, that our God is this triune a community of love. He doesn't need us to worship him, and, and he doesn't need our money. And, I mean, you, should, you shouldn't feel under any obligation to give. You're just our guest here this morning. Um, but when you hear Jesus talk about money, it's almost always in terms of him being hard on rich people. He's very hard on rich people. And his half-brother James, in the passage today, he is hard on rich people. Today he has some very strong, terse, tense words, sharp words that he's speaking to, uh, to people who are ungodly with their riches. And here they are. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields, they are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Who is James speaking to here? I mean, obviously, he's talking to wealthy people. People who are supposed to pay the wages of their uh, of their fields, men and women. But is he talking to Christians or non-Christians? That question has been debated down through the years among students of the Bible. Are these Christian men and women whom he's specifically addressing in verses 1 through 6? And my answer to that question is, um, well, you notice that he doesn't call them brothers or sisters. If you've been with us through the book of James, as we've been reading through it over the last couple of months, one of the ways he addresses his congregations, always in familial terms, when he's talking, he's always talking about my brothers or my sisters. But here there's clearly no familial language. I mean, there's nothing warm and uh, fuzzy about his address. He basically says that you are going to hell. You rich people, you are going to hell because of your exploitive labor practices, because of your vast accumulation of wealth which you have hoarded for yourself and spent on your own luxury and self-indulgence, you have defrauded people and have created a work environment that's dangerous, that if we interpret verse 6 literally, suggests that you know, 
The work environment that you have made has led to the death of some of your field workers. Verse 1, go back there with me. He says, weep and howl. That's prophetic judgment language. Weep and howl, for you are people under the wrath of God. Weep and howl for the miseries that are about to come upon you. Verse 2, your riches and your fine clothing, which symbolizes your materialistic lifestyle, these will be lost to you forever. And even now, the moths have eaten it and it's all corroded. And then in verse 5, what a striking metaphor again. He says that you have fattened yourself like a cow out in pasture. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. All of your wealth and accumulation uh, has just made you more ripe for the slaughterhouse. So, (laughs) is that how we normally talk to genuine brothers and sisters in Christ? There are good arguments for for saying that, yes, these are Christian people that he's speaking to, but um, I I don't think so. I think that he is signaling... he is, you're calling out a specific group of the ruling and powerful elite, the, the landowners of Judea and the rich landowners of the Roman Empire, and he is publicly calling, calling them out. But at the same time, I don't want us to walk away and think that the passage has nothing to say to us, because <laughs> every passage in the Bible is applicable. The only question is, how does it apply? So it would be a huge mistake for us to walk away and say, well, that's not me. I preached a sermon a year ago on the Gospel of Luke chapter 12, and I asked you to do a mental exercise. I said, will you make a list in your mind of who are the most materialistic people whom you know? Get them in your head real quickly, I said. These would be the people who are the most enamored with having the newest version of everything, who are the biggest shopaholics, who are the most brand conscious. Who are the, these are the people who would never be caught dead with wearing something that they had bought from Walmart. So you make a list of the most materialistic people you know. Maybe you've done that already right now. And what you find is your name is not on that list. I mean, we never see ourselves that way. Um, and the thing is, is, if you went and talked to the person who was on your list, and you asked them to make a list, they wouldn't be on their own list. Why is that? It's because the, the very intrinsic nature of greed and materialism is to blind us to its presence. Greed and materialism blinds us to its own presence. So recognizing that, my first instinct when I read a passage like this is actually not to say, well, that this doesn't apply to me. It's actually to say, Lord, if I am guilty of the things that you say in this passage, would you please, please, please get my attention? Because I don't want to be that guy. If I am guilty of this, would you please shake, (laughs) rattle my cage and get my attention Because how awful it would be, friends, how awful it would be to reach the end of our lives on the day of reckoning and have God say to us, you know, I was trying to talk to you about the way that you use your wealth and the way that you've used your power, and you were not listening to me. 
How terrible it would be for that to be said of us. So Lord, if I am guilty, Holy Spirit, convict me of my sin. But the second thing I think of when I read a passage like this, and I I hope it's our instinct, that is, when we read a passage like this, we should feel like we need to warn that guy. We need to warn the rich guy. If we love people and if we believe that words like this in the Bible are true, then we should have real pity for them. And we must warn them because a terrible fate awaits them. This is a terrifying judgment that is spoken about quite frequently in the Bible. You know, long before Karl Marx ever had anything to say about exploitive labor practices, there were the prophets, Amos, Hosea, Jeremiah, who railed against the ruling class about how they were how they were oppressing the poor. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 1. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people. Woe to those who make widows their prey and rob the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To who will you run for help? Where will, where, where will you leave your riches? We may not like social justice pronouncements, but there are a whole lot of them in the Bible. Add James to that list. That's why I titled the sermon, uh, this is not a real uh, catchy one, but (laughs) a prophetic denunciation of rich oppressors. James is making a a prophetic social justice warning to these people because the rich man needs to be confronted. There's a scene in the film Titanic when the ship's engineer realizes that the boat that everybody's on is going to sink, and he realizes this before anybody else uh, is aware of the fact. Uh, The character Rose, played by Kate Winslet, walks up to him and she says, Mr. Andrews, I saw the iceberg and I see it in your eyes. Please tell me the truth. Please tell me the truth. And he replies, in an hour or so, all of this will be at the bottom of the Atlantic. Here's the thing. If the warning corresponds to reality, then it's a kindness. It is a kindness of God. And it doesn't matter how undiplomatically it's delivered to a person, how completely lacking in tact, what an angry tone of voice you used, how you raised your voice to a certain decibel level. If the warning corresponds to reality, then it's a mercy that needs to be spoken. We need to warn them of their fate if they don't repent. Interestingly enough, the wealthiest man on board of the Titanic was a guy by the name of John Jacob Astor. John Jacob Astor was from New York City, and he made all of his money as a slumlord. When they recovered his body from the ocean, he had a wallet on him that was filled with $4,000 in bills. $4,000 would, when you do the 
inflation calculations, $4,000 would be the equivalent of $100,000 in today's money. I don't know about you, but I rarely carry $100,000 in my pocket day to day. Unless that man miraculously repented at the very last moment of his life before his death, then the cries of the harvesters had reached the Lord Almighty and he met a terrible fate. Did any Christian have enough love or courage to tell him that? What else can we find here in James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6? This passage gives us an opportunity to consider the words of Jesus, which can be found in Luke 12, verse 33. In fact, James is quoting, or yeah, he's sort of quoting Jesus' own words. So the, the two passages, the parallel passages, are Luke 12 and Matthew 6. Here's what Jesus says to us, his disciples. These are the words of your Savior speaking He says, sell your possessions and give alms to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. So that language in verse 2 about the moths eating the clothes and the wealth rotting, he's he's riffing off of Jesus. Sell your possessions and give alms to the poor. Did you know that the average American will earn approximately, this is the average, just totally economic average Joe American. He or she will earn approximately $2 million over their lifetime. Even if you are, you walk in this morning and you feel completely broke, when you compare yourself to the rest of the poor in the world, you are somebody's Bill Gates, There's somebody in this world whose mind is absolutely blown by the amount of money that passes through your hands over the course of your lifetime. Now, if you have a college degree, you're going to make more than $2 million. If you live near a big city, you're most likely going to make more than $2 million. If you are a two-income household, then you're going to make $5 or $6 million. But in other words, over the course of our lifetime, just the perfectly average American Millions of dollars are going to pass through their hands. And Jesus says, you will have possessions to sell to, to sell in order to give alms to the poor. Proverbs 14, verse 21. <clears throat> it is a sin to despise one's neighbor, but blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. Those millions of dollars that pass through our hands are not meant by Jesus for us to merely spend on ourselves. I mean, what I think we would once said about every one of us is that if we handed our bank account, our bank statements, over to a non-Christian person, and they, they audited our bank statements, and maybe you have an accountant and that's what they do. They look through your bank statements, they would say, that is a man or a woman who truly cares about the poor. Here's a man or woman who, uh, who cares about the poor, the widow, and the orphan, which are the categories that James keeps talking about in his letter. He, wow, here's a person who really takes the words of Jesus seriously. They must really believe in this treasure in heaven thing. Do you, do, does your giving represent and, and reflect a sacrificial concern for the poor? 
And the thing is, it's only you know. I don't know. He doesn't know. She doesn't know. We don't know. Only you and God knows. Only you and God have access to your bank accounts. Uh, we don't know. We, don't, we, we, can't, we can't tell how generous a person is by externals, can we? You could have a person who drives the most blinged out Cadillac Escalade, and yet secretly that guy or that lady is one of the most secretly generous person that you'll find around. And then you can find a guy who uh, uh, drives a 1994 Honda Civic who is proud of the fact that he's not as materialistic as everybody else and who has a miserly spirit to the poor. You just don't know. And it's terribly wrong for us to judge our fellow Christians based on the car they drive or, or the home they live in, uh, to judge each other on the basis of outward presentations of wealth because we don't know, but God does. And every one of us will have to give an account to Jesus about what we did. I mean, what does he say? To whom much is given, much is, is required. Every one of us will have to answer to him for how we have treated the poor but we don't have to answer to each other. <laughs> um, I don't know your bank accounts, uh, and, and I shouldn't. Now, interestingly enough, if we were LDS, <laughs> you know, the LDS require a tithe out of their people. If you're going to go over to Meridian and see the opening of the temple this next, uh, this next week, I mean, you'll find a very ornately designed building because they require a tithe out of their people. And, and somehow or another, those guys, they get hold of your, uh, your bank accounts or your salary. I mean, I've heard stories where Elder Brown comes up to the door and, and talks to Mr. Smith. And can I come in, Mr. Smith? Sure, Elder Brown. And he sits down and says, hey, you know, looking at this, you're not giving what you're supposed to be giving. No, that's not. We, we, would, we would think it would be a whole lot easier if Jesus would have given us a minimum contribution limit. If he told us, okay, 10% tithe to your local church, 10% gifts of alms to the poor, and then you have got treasure in heaven. We would love for him to give us specifics, but instead, Jesus gives us metaphors. <laughs> and he gives us liberty. He gives us the, the generosity, uh, the liberty of generosity. And so, um, I, I memorized Matthew chapter 6 a long time ago when I was a kid. Uh, you should memorize it. Uh, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be. And it's easy to memorize that. It's hard to live that. But we must. James' statements here, uh, the part that stood out to me that I thought was especially applicable to us given the environment that we live in are his statements regarding hoarding in verse 3 and self-indulgence in verse 5. Verse 3, he says, uh, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. It's not that we don't have a right to take our wealth and purchase something. 
Our problem is that we have already purchased so many things, so many things we don't, we don't even need. You know, our gra- garages and closets are overflowing with things we don't even use, and every day presents us with a new opportunity to add more to it. Even when we run out of space, we keep buying. Jesus tells a story about that. Anybody remember? <laughs> it's also in Luke 12. He tells a story about a man who uh, was blessed economically. He was rich. He was doing well. He had a bumper crop. He was doing great. And the problem, the question he was asking at that time was, what do I do if I have too much stuff to put in my barns? What do I do if I have too much stuff to put in my barns? Here's what I'll do. I'll tear my barns down and build larger ones. And I'll store all my stuff and my goods there. Yes, more barns, more stuff. And I will say to myself, this is Jesus telling the story. I'll say to myself, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease now. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God said, you are a fool. You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself, but who is not rich towards God. Those are the two categories Jesus uses. And I think those two categories correspond to, uh, you know, the man who stores up treasures for himself, a.k.a. hoards, is different than the man or woman who takes whatever, whatever wealth they have and uses it for the poor and for the kingdom of heaven. No, I mean, of course the Bible is not against saving. The Bible says it's prudential to save. The Bible is against hoarding. And the question that we have to ask God is, when do I cross over the line from prudential saving to, uh, to selfish hoarding? When do I... Uh, when am I storing up treasures for myself? And what does Paul say to Timothy in 1 Timothy? He says, instruct the rich of this world to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and ready to share and to store up for themselves treasures of a good foundation for the future. Then in verse 5, it talks about our uh, living self It talks about self-indulgence lives. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself. Incredible stat I came across. Uh, Of of American households that make over $100,000 a year, one-third of them, or only one-third of them, yes, one-third of them agree with the statement that I can afford to buy everything I really need. Or in other words, two-thirds of Americans who make over 100K, they don't believe that they can afford to buy everything that they, they really need. Why would that be the case? And I think it has to do with, it has to do with marketing. <laughs> it has to do with the fact that every product that is sold today, you can always get a better one. You can always upgrade everything from toothbrushes to toothpaste to home furnishings, to electronics, there's always an upgrade available. And the way that we normally work is as our salaries go up, uh, well, we just think, well, so I'm going to upgrade right along with it. And quickly those upgrades then become 
needs. They're transformed into needs. But we have to be serious about the fact that we don't need these things. Parents and grandparents, we have got to be serious about the fact that our kids, your, your kids and grandkids, they don't need more and more and better and better. We should be on guard about feeding their consumerist appetite. They don't need nice cars. Amen? <laughs> they may not even need a car for quite a while. Um, they don't need the latest technological upgrade. Don't just give them the toys of the world, which leads to a self-indulgent appetite. I love what John Piper says in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, because this is applicable to all of us. He says this, All of us are naturally wired to love the same toys the world loves. We're all wired to love the same toys the world loves. If I let myself go with the flow of the American dream, I start to call earth home, and before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs. And I'm using my money just the way unbelievers do. I sink into a secular mindset and I forget that I have been invited out of the world of mundane consumption and into the greatest drama this universe has ever seen or will ever know. Isn't that a lovely way to put it? He continues, our God is on a rescue mission. He's informed us of that fact and we have been invited to join him on that mission. He calls us to do with our resources whatever we can to push back against that which is dark in this world, to use our gifts, our energy, our resources, so that we might participate in the great dramatic mission of redemption, knowing that the victory has already been guaranteed by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and not to to be a man-child who is continually accumulating more toys. So we, we have to be on guard. And um, you, know, there's, you can't teach your kids to be rich towards God if you haven't learned what that means first. You can't teach your kids what it means to be rich towards God if you're playing the game of life like everybody else is. So be on guard against hoarding. Be on guard against, against self-indulgence. Um, Remember what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 again. He says, we brought nothing into this world and we can't take anything out of it with us. Naked I came into the world, naked I will return. So verse 8, I mean, yeah, verse 8 in chapter 6, if we have food and clothing, if we have food and clothing with these, I will be content. How many of us are are content with only having just food and clothing? (laughs) No, I mean, let's be honest. We think we are owed something more than that. I couldn't even tell you the last time I thanked God for my clothes. This shirt on my back is great, Lord. Thank you. I'm so content with it. Um, you know, if I could go back, though, and do, have a do-over on my parenting, there's so many things I would, I would change. But one of them would be to teach my kids that the most fulfilling life there is in the universe is the life that is rich towards God and content with the necessities. Verse 9, for those who want to get rich, Paul says, fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Then he has the famous phrase at the very end of it, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And that is why 
John Wesley, this is the money quote. There's always a money quote in a sermon. This is it. Write it down. John Wesley said this. He said, when I get money, I give it away quickly, lest it finds its way into my heart. I mean, all the man is doing there is, is acknowledging the fact that money is dangerous. Money's not bad. Money is like fire. It's, it's good. Fire, it lights the room. It helps you cook food. It keeps you warm. And it can burn down everything around you. Fire is dangerous. And money is dangerous. Is that what we tell our kids? You better beware of that. Do you tell your kids uh, not to play the lottery? What you should tell them is not only don't play the lottery, but if the state of Idaho decided to take every citizen and put their name in a hat and randomly draw out one to be the happy recipient of $60 million, hope that your name isn't drawn (laughs) because you don't want it to go into your heart. You tell them that, I, do, I wouldn't even trust, I wouldn't trust myself with that, with that much. Let me conclude with a famous story also about John Wesley. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist Church, a very famous preacher, but when he started out, he was nothing more than a typical Anglican cleric living on a small salary. He did not have very much money. Uh, but as his fame spread, he began to preach out in the, the woods on horseback, and larger, uh, larger crowds show up, basically, essentially. And he has a bigger following. And by the end of his life, he's making quite a bit of money on the royalties of the, of the publications of his sermons that got printed uh, in England. So here's what we know about John Wesley's giving habits. In one year, John Wesley made 30 pounds, and he gave away three of them. So he tithed it. In year two, John Wesley made 40 pounds, and he gave away 10 of them. In year three, John Wesley made 70 pounds, and he gave away 40 of them. And near the end of his life, uh, I don't know what year it was, John Wesley made 1,400 pounds, and he gave away 1,370 of it. You see the pattern, right? His, His income kept going up, and he said, you know, I'm going to stay at 30. I'm just going to stay at 30. One of the questions a Christian has to ask, is my standard of living going up as fast as my income? Because it, it, it shouldn't. Not if we're taking Jesus' words about money seriously. Quote, the more money uh, that we make, the greater the distance there must be between the lifestyle you do live and the lifestyle you're capable of living So you could say, well, here's where I could live at. But I am choosing because I believe Jesus' words about the poor. I believe his words about the kingdom. I am choosing to live down here. Whoa. (laughs) We we recognize that would be revolutionary. I mean, if if all of us did that, that would be amazing. (laughs) Friends, okay, um... I mean, I said I was concluding with this Wesley story, but there's one other thing I want to conclude with, and that is, it's this. If we were to calculate all the net worth in this room, 
Like we took your net wealth and my net wealth and we just put it all together. There would obviously be a lot of money. There would be millions and millions of dollars. Um, The dream of every pastor, honestly, the dream of Jesus is that the amount of net wealth that is represented in this room today is nothing compared to the net wealth that has been stored up by this congregation in heaven, (laughs) right? That we would have been such faithful stewards of what we've been given on this earth that we truly would have laid up some enormous amount in the Gringotts wizarding vault (laughs) above. It's a metaphor. (laughs) But that we would, I mean, Jesus didn't die for us to live the self-indulgent American dream, did he? He didn't. He became a poor man. He was born into a poor family. And he became infinitely poor on the cross for our sake so that we would understand the proper use of wealth is to spend it. He's given us the wealth to spend it on the poor and to extend the kingdom of God and the mercies of Christ everywhere. May God let it be. Amen.